Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another conversation here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland, and it's a little windy and chilly here in north central Montana. We got the preg checking done earlier this week, about 25 degrees with a nice north wind, but We've done it in a lot worse conditions, I can say that. And you know what? The the herd actually bred up pretty good despite all the drought conditions. And uh, uh, we're going to a little warmer part of the world here today with our conversation to the state of California, to San Luis Obispo County. Uh, we're joined today by Steve and Daniel Sinton. And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation and, and learning about their rich history in that part of the nation and also the paths they have taken in raising cattle, marketing them, diversifying their operation, and uh, just looking towards the future. So, uh, uh, Steve and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Cattleman's Call podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. We're looking forward to this. Now, for our listeners, we, we have listeners of all ages, all backgrounds, and involvement in the cattle industry. And uh, California has such a rich history and, and plays such a, a key role in food production in the United States. Uh, Steve, could, could you share more about... Uh, the history of, of your family's involvement in California agriculture and uh, how it's evolved into your family's current operation. Yeah, well, it goes back to my great-grandparents. Um, my great-grandmother, well, actually, they're my great-great-grandparents, uh, had a dairy in Sacramento in the 1850s. And uh, my great-grandmother was born there in 1858. And then in 1862, Sacramento was under 10 feet of water. The, they, we've read recently about these mega storms that we're thinking will come to California. Well, they had one in 1861, 1862, and the Sacramento River was over 30 feet wide, and Sacramento was under 10 feet of water. So they washed out and ended up in San Francisco with a dairy. And, uh, and then uh, my great-grandfather... Uh, who married into that family, uh, came to San Luis Obispo County in 1874 and started buying up ranch land the next year. And we've been at it ever since. Now, can I ask, as your family found themselves in California, did they make their, their way on wagon train across the nation or, or did they, they come in from the West Coast ports? They, uh, they came in from the West Coast ports. And uh, my Great grandfather came from Germany to uh, to New York, and then his brother was paying his way, but got captured by the Confederate Army in Andersonville, and that was the end of the support system for my great grandfather. So he was out on his own and all over the country. Um, we don't know quite how he got to California. We know he was in Mississippi just before he came to California. Well, that, that's so great that you have that history and are able to pass that along because we can learn so much about uh, how our current operations have got to where they're at from the blood, sweat, and tears uh, from our forefathers. And I think that so many of our ranching operations and farming operations, maybe we don't know all the history. That's like myself. I don't know all the history of my dad's side of the family mo moving from Sweden to the United States. And uh, Steve, for yourself, how important is it to, to, to look at that history up into the present and how agriculture has changed and how your family is still in agriculture production? 
Well, gosh, in some ways, Lane, it's not changed very much. I mean, we still get on our horses and go out and gather the cattle. And and in other ways, it's dramatically different. Of course, uh, when my great-grandfather started, there were no cattle trucks. So everything was driven to market. Everything relied on the trains to get your cattle from the ranch, or at least from the nearest railroad center to wherever your market was. And over the years, um, the marketing's been very different. We used to have to just, um, we were like everybody else in California. Your cattle got shipped down to Los Angeles and then the, the packers paid you whatever they wanted and you had to take it because your cattle were in a, in a pen being fed until you sold them. And actually my, uh, my grandfather started with uh, the Brown family of Santa Maria. They started one of the first uh, large feeding operations in California, just so that the local ranchers wouldn't have to take whatever they were offered down in Los Angeles. The buyers had to come and look at your cattle and you could leave them in the feedlot another week if you had to, to wait for the market to improve. Well, again, it, it sure has changed how we how we move cattle, how we market cattle, but uh, we still have a lot of challenges that that we all face in the industry. And and, and Daniel, for for yourself, uh, uh, d- did you always know that you were going to still be involved in the family business? Did did you spend time away from from the ranch? Uh, let's just talk about your involvement. Sure. Well, I, I I knew I always wanted to come back here and raise a family like I was here at. I'm fifth generation and I, you know, wanted my boys to be able to come back and, and be here too. Um, and, but yeah, I, I, I traveled around, uh, mostly in California doing other jobs, um, learning, learning different things as I was going. And then the opportunity to come back here presented itself. And, you know, like most families that have ranches, uh, they rely on outside income to be able to, to provide their income and then they can continue on the ranch. And so um, I found an opportunity that allowed me to, to be on the ranch while still making a living um, outside of it. And then slowly transitioned into uh, taking over for my parents, uh, both in the vineyard and on the cattle operation. So, well, I, I want to talk about that vineyard, but uh, we'll save that for a little uh, later here in our conversation. Uh, first, I want to focus on on your cattle. What 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 type of cattle do you raise? Uh, uh, am I correct in saying you raise both uh, registered and commercial cattle? Correct. Yeah. So we have, we run cow calf pairs. Um, we have a registered herd of Angus and a registered herd of Herefords, and then uh, we have a commercial herd. So we have two ranches. One's a six thousand acre ranch. Um, uh, a little closer to town and then there's a 12,000 acre ranch uh, a little bit further back in that's uh, currently under conservation easement from California Rangeland Trust and so we run the commercial herd on the Avenals um, ranch which is the larger one and then on the Canyon Ranch we run um, uh, both of the registered registered herds but also a group of um, larger steers that are set up outside for organic production. And so when you're looking at uh, the marketing of those registered cattle, do you guys do a production sale then then every year or, or how do you market the, the registered genetics? We're just kind of edging our way in that direction for the last 50 or 60 years that we've been doing those animals. They've just been production for our own uh, bull uh, purposes with the commercial herd. 
So do you have any black baldy cows out in the countryside? Lots of lots of black baldy animals running around, both big and little. So, and I guess uh, for, for for your family's operation, you've you've found that uh, uh, crossbreeding is probably a, a great way to to have so many different uh, traits uh, of what what you're looking for in that part of the nation. Uh, why have you? Uh, why do you still continue to raise those two uh, along? And how long have you been raising these two different breeds and and running running? Uh, uh, both Angus and Hereford. Well, the Herefords started in 1960, probably, yeah, probably. Somewhere, in that, somewhere in that range. And, uh, and then the Angus has been a more recent development in the last, you know, 20 years or so. And I think control over our own genetics, you know, being able to produce our bulls, it's obviously quite a bit cheaper to produce your own, um, than to be buying them every year. And, and so, I think that's a part of it. Um, you know, the Herefords, uh, we, our ranches, but both ranches are fairly remote and you, you're not going to see the animals dropping their calves. So, you know, top priority was calving ease. And so that was something that we focused on for decades and, and we still focus on today. But the Herefords are the top 1% of the top 1% in the nation for calving ease. And so we've, definitely pride ourselves on that piece of things but then they also are in the top one percent for uh, marbling and then we brought in the angus to bring in some of those other carcass traits that that are so desirable so yeah our, our, our crossbreeding program began uh we originally had which were you know they were all english breed but university of california cooperative extension had done some research on on crossbreeding and and encouraged us to try that and and so we 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 tried a whole bunch of different breeds just put them out with the cows we had to see which calves were did did well in our country and one breed that did very well were brown swiss but we um and we just crossbred with them but we couldn't get whole brown swiss we got them one time from a man in new hampshire who was closing out his herd but we could not get outside brown Swiss bulls to continue that program. And so that's been dropped. Um, but you still probably, what, 25, 30 years later, you still can see those genetics in your cow herd. Now, I saw one just the other day, I, and it wasn't with a, a, a lighter colored animal. It was just this little Swiss mocha calf running around. And I thought, God, that's amazing that that's still, still running around up there. We also once upon a time had one uh Scottish Highlander cow and those genetics lasted probably 30 years later because they're so distinct. So it's kind of fun to see that, but we've been focusing on the English breed because Daniel started the organic grass fed beef program and, and, um, and those breeds tend to, to do well uh, as grass fed animals. Yeah. And, and that leads me right into, to my next uh, question is uh Looking at these these different ways of raising cattle and marketing the the beef that that they produce, uh, when did you des- decide to start looking at that organic grass fed uh, option uh, for for your operation, and then having that option for consumers? Right. Well, so my grandfather was born in 1916, and he lived here on the ranch until a few years ago when he passed away at 101, and. Um, I had a conversation with him probably eight or nine years ago where I, I said, well, what do you think about the grass fed thing? He goes, oh, this is, this is just a fad. And I said, okay, well, you know, there, there are these 
buyers who are approaching us, they want to buy our animals and they're paying a lot more than other folks would. And so, and they didn't care whether it was Hereford or Angus, you know, a lot of times when you go to sell the market, they don't, they, you know, you get dinged for having a brown animal in there. So they, I, we just kind of tinkered with it. And then my dad and I chatted about it and about a year went by and, and these guys were still asking and, and we all kind of said, okay, well, I guess it's worth, worth taking a shot at. And so we, we started selling to some of the, some of those larger outfits that do the grass fed beef programs here in California. Um, and that, that went really well. And I, I could see that the kind of writing was on the wall for organic to be the next piece of what we needed to be doing. And we were already running our animals and the land organically, essentially. There are very few tweaks that we had to make to make that transition. So, you know, it was just about paperwork at that point. And pay paperwork is my worst nightmare. So I, I, it took me another year before we dipped our toe into the organic side of things, but eventually transitioned into organic um, grass-fed beef with panorama meats. And then the direct-to-consumer pieces started just before COVID kind of hit, and it was just moseying along. We were doing uh, beef for friends and family kind of thing, and then had some guy from Los Angeles call me and say, I want some beef. And I, I said, how did you even find me? I, I'm not on the internet. I, I don't have it for sale for people to find. And he said, well, I normally go to these websites, and so I – Put my information up on them and then all of a sudden COVID hit and people couldn't find beef in the stores and things start ramping up pretty quickly so now we're we're doing a pretty large amount of beef direct to consumer which is great i mean we get these amazing feedback direct you know you get to interact with the consumer they can tell you what cuts they want and you know um, people just love knowing where their food comes from again and and i think that's a really cool piece to to be a part of what obviously processing was one of the bigger challenges when you jumped into that direct to consumer model, um, just trying to find hook space and, and, a, and a place to have it processed. Uh, could, could you talk about that? Maybe just some other challenges, but opportunities you found along the way in engaging with that uh, direct to consumer model? Sure. Well, so we're, we're fortunate that one of the few USDA, you know, harvest facilities around here, there's a mobile harvest unit uh, in the county. San Luis County has one. And so, and then there's a butcher shop in Paso Robles. And we just, we're just fortunate that those things all exist right here. And so we've been able to take advantage of that. But yeah, there have been pinch points in that process as, as anything happens, you know, the fair animals all of a sudden show up and they can't process anything for two or three months while they're trying to work their way through that kind of thing. So there's those types of pieces. And then, um, you know, others in the state I've, I've heard have had trouble. And so a lot of newer places have been built um, either by the people who were having the problem and wanted to, didn't want their, their programs slowing down um, or new places popping up because of, you know, the opportunity. Now, Steve, when when Daniel was talking about looking at grass-fed, then organic, and, and the direct-to-consumer model, what, what were your thoughts initially on that? Well, we'd never done it that way before. Isn't that what every older generation says? <laughs> no, I, I when Daniel kind of went through the numbers and, and the uh, grass-fed, organic grass-fed people were putting a minimum price on things, that, that appealed to me because... One of the things we run into here is we always seem to have cattle ready to market when the when the 
annual sine wave is at the bottom. And uh, so moving ourselves out of that natural cycle, I don't know if it's natural or not, but that cycle uh, appealed to me a lot because we've, we've been doing this for 140 years and it seems like if you add up all the numbers, we, we break even decade after decade. Well, and I, I think going back to the price point, we, we discussed this last week is that, you know, 60 years ago, we were getting, you know, producers were getting 62 cents a pound out of the dollar, sorry, 62 cents out of the dollar that every consumer spent. And now we're getting 37 cents. And so, you know, things were difficult 60 years ago. And now we just have to find a, a way to get a bigger piece of that number back. Now, when you were making that transition, as you said, you were doing a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, items that are on the checklist uh, of becoming organic certified. Uh, what were some of the infrastructure changes that you had to make, say, in your fence line or your facilities to, to qualify for that organic uh, uh, stamp? Because I, I know a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be hard or, or it's so many years when you take traded posts out. This is just things that I hear at the coffee shop. What, what was that process like and what were the, the challenges that, that came along with that that you know, ultimately have led to the success you're having now? It's a great question, and a lot of people ask it of me, and I, I've never had a great answer other than that not a whole lot has changed. I, we didn't change our infrastructure uh, other than, you know, every once in a while a yellow star thistle would patch, a, you know, get a patch growing somewhere, and we'd go and nail it with some spray. But, uh, and so we're not doing that anymore, but, you know, the day-to-day -day practice of you know if an animal gets sick it's just you just have to go through a different process and and you have to tag it when it happens if you get if you give it medication which you know is uh, you know less than one percent of your animals every year um and most of those were pink eye and so we have a pink eye vaccine that we give that's approved and uh, it seems to have knocked down the the numbers that we're seeing from that so I mean, the feed actually probably, you know, we don't do a whole lot of feeding. Most of it is just natural grass here. Um, we don't raise any of our own hay or anything like that. Uh, so we don't really tend to use much. Um, but that is probably one of the bigger difficulties for, for people coming into the reg uh, organic, organic uh, program is that finding organic feed it can be difficult. Yeah, we used to supplement with protein blocks and nobody makes an organic protein block as an example. So it, it was easy for us. You know, you get a truckload of block and you just put them out as you need it and you can store it till you don't need it when you don't need it. And uh, and now uh, we're having to buy hay, which requires, you know, a lot of labor to get it out to the cattle and, you know, hauling it around the ranch. So it's it's an inconvenience, but it's not a hardship. On the mineral front, what are you supplementing with? Well, so um, there are there are some organic loose feeds that you can that you can do. Um, of course, because they're grass fed, you can't feed that uh, to the calves that you'll be um, producing for organic harvest. Um, so there's a little bit of that. We've we've got organic hay that comes out of Oregon, um, and then uh, you know the registered animals are not organic, so we're able to use the protein blocks on that. 
And, and so just just for my my, my understanding of it, are, are you able to finish all of your your grass fed and organic calves on the ranch or are you in partnership with any other leases or how, how, do you have enough land to do that? I guess is my question. Well, not in the last this year was especially difficult. I mean, the last last decade or two has been extremely difficult. My dad has some information on on rain records that'll be um interesting for this conversation but but the answer is we don't do any leasing necessarily um we try to fluctuate with the number of animals the number of calves that we keep for that production and we finally had to uh this is the first year in during the program where we haven't been able to hold those yearly things around uh to be large enough for harvest so we'll be skipping this next june's uh harvest group but but hopefully back to it the following year. But the, yeah, the rain, the rain has really been the trouble. Yeah. Steve, if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing that, that historical uh, weather pattern you've been keeping track of. Yeah, we, I just looked at the last 22 years and split it in half. So in the first 11 years from kind of the turn of the century, we had um, four below average years and five above average years. So, and two average years. So it was kind of, average, if you will. And then the last 11 years, we've had seven below average years and only two above, two wet years and two average years. So that we we do a lot of work with the University of California Cooperative Extension, and they've been clipping grass for years. And one of the things we've learned is that when you go into a dry cycle, the grass usually is better than you expect given the rainfall. But at some point it crashes. And about the third dry year in a row, it really crashes. So you get a certain amount of rain and you have a certain expectation and you adjust your cow herd to that. And then you find out in the third dry year that it just doesn't make it at all. So um, that's what we bumped up into this year and, and we just didn't have the feed. And it's a compounding thing because we just got some rain, but we don't have any cover. So then it freezes and the grass freezes back or won't grow. So you 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 start with the problem of not having enough feed and then next year's feed is hampered by the lack of carryover feed. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, before we started recording that you were fortunate enough to find some grass in Wyoming, though, to, to run some cattle. Uh, what was that like, just trying to find uh, uh, an operation, not even next door, but several states away to be able to, to retain that herd and, uh, and continue running there in the cowboy state? Sure. Well, so uh, we recently got Audubon certified, so Audubon Ranching certified. And so uh, the guy, Matt Owls, Matt Owlshouse, that uh, runs that program with us, um, he has some property out there and we were discussing the need for, or we wanted to try summering some animals over, but it has to be organic land. It has to be run a certain way and all that. So his land was already that in that. It wasn't certified organic, but it didn't, you know, that process we just had to run through and get an audit of of the land so we shifted 80 steers over there for the summer and then ran into as you know from montana uh one of the worst drought years there so so it wasn't extremely helpful but um but it you know it allowed us to understand the the ups and downs of trying to summer cattle outside of your state so 
No, no, definitely. And, and uh, it's just difficult, too, when, when you can't be there to see them or, or, or drive down the road to, to keep an eye on them as well. But, uh, no, drought continues to have its impact, and producers are, are trying so many different ways just to retain their herds or, or keep their top-producing cows and those genetics all put together. But I think this leads into back to how your family has diversified your business um, if you had not been proactive in diversifying, uh, trying grass fed, the moving into organic and, and, uh, and, and all the other ventures that uh, the family operation currently is a part of, would you still be in business if you had not diversified? Well, I sure don't think so. Um, it's, I, as I was saying, we are break even over decades of being in this business, but I look back at the things that it brought in money and they were almost always something that we had diversified into. I had mentioned the feedlot in Santa Maria, uh, many, many years ago that that was one of many that, uh, that we did. My great grandfather was, had a, had a store in San Luis Obispo and he was, he, uh, he went broken that, but he had an expertise in beans because back in the 1880s, 1890s, people ate a lot of beans and he knew all about them. And where to store them and where to buy them and which culture use which bean and all that kind of stuff and he made he was successful with that um and then more recently in our time we planted the vineyard in 1972 and it's had its ups and downs but in the last 20 years it's mostly been up and it's helped support the family and keep us going and that's that's really important and uh, let's just talk about that vineyard then. Um, I, I'm trying to follow my notes that, that Sarah always lines out for me, uh, but uh, I, I'm always out in the sagebrush jumping around half the time. It's it's, it's kind of like trailing heifers back home some days. It, it feels like when you're in a conversation with me on, on the podcast, you, know, you never know how it's going to go. But, you know, you, you look back to the 1970s when you planted that vineyard and, and uh, whatnot, uh, what, uh, what what was that like, uh, just uh, uh, putting in a, a, a vineyard, uh, taking care of vines? What was the education learning like? Uh, did, did you rely on extension or, or other people within the industry to, to learn how to cultivate those vines? Well, the first, I mean, we knew a little bit about farming. We'd done, done some over the years. And um, my, my family has a connection going back into the Depression with this the um, Martini family of Napa. And actually um, the senior Martini who started the kind of famous Martini winery in, in Napa started out with us in the San Joaquin Valley. He kind of saved us because it was pretty hard, hard to sell wine during the, during the depression because that was also prohibition. And, um, and then that, um, that family stayed in touch with us and, and we used the son, Louis Martini, to come out down here and tell us what he thought would grow in our climate and our soils. And that's the only expertise we had. We didn't have, you know, I, I don't think Cooperative Extension really was involved in wine at that point. They may have been up north, but there was nobody down here. And uh, the, only, the only wineries are the only, yeah, there were a couple of old, old wineries that went way back, but nothing really of current vintage. So we didn't have anybody to, to help us. We just follow what Louis Martini told us to do. And I had a cousin who uh, went off to college and had, got a enology degree and a viticultural degree and came back and he was making the decisions after that. 
So uh, with, with your vineyard, do, do you sell the grapes or do you process that uh, to, to have your own wine label as well? Well, we, so we, we have 120 acres of wine grapes total. There's Cabernet, Petit Syrah, Chenin Blanc, and Val de And 99% of those grapes get sold out to other wineries. And we have a small label that's called Avenal's Ranch um, that we produce for uh, about 500 cases. And uh, what, what's that like when you have a guest come to the ranch, when you can, when you can put your organic uh, a steak in front of them with a nice uh, gl- glass of red and, and say, you know what, Th- this comes from our family. Well, I, I can, I, you know, I understand when you can serve your own beef, but when you can actually serve uh, your own glass of wine, what is that? What, what is that like? No, I think there's a lot of pride in that, you know, just, just like you're saying with the same thing with the steak and, and especially when you can combo it. And I, now we just need to grow some potatoes to be able to, finish off the plate so i uh just a side story i host the national potato council's podcast as well in addition <laughs> to the cattleman's call so i always i always joke i have the best of both worlds i got steak and taters maybe there's a viticulture uh yeah you're gonna uh, need podcast. to pull in some wine yeah to, uh, do do the viticulture podcast next time but uh you know i i guess when when we look at uh this diversification what what are some tips that you have for for produce, producers because obviously california is such an eden when it comes to being able to to raise livestock to grow crops and so many different uh, varieties of crops uh so folks in montana we we, we can't just go out and, and plant a vineyard our growing season isn't isn't long enough but what what are your tips of being so diversified in a family business about how important it is to continue to to, to always seek education, to not uh, just shut down another family member's ideas? What, how important it is is it to have that communication and look for different opportunities to be profitable in the ag business? I'm not sure exactly where to start here. We we continue to diversify not only with the vineyard but we also have a hunting club, which brings in some money, but, you know, as valuable as that is, having them on the ranch, spotting the leaks in the water lines, running trespassers off, uh, controlling the hunting to a point where it's sustainable, which is important to us, uh, that's been very valuable. Um, the family involvement, I think that's something you have to nurture. Otherwise, you will have the the family member who wants his piece of the asset and go back to whatever his or her life is and, and the heck with the, all the hardships of the ranch. We don't have that in this family, um, but we've also made a real concerted effort to get together, have ranching experiences, have Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or some other holiday together. We try to have family reunions and we then expand it to some cousins who aren't who have never been associated with the ranch. They're, you know, from family members that that married into the ranching family. And that all kind of makes it a wonderful place for them to be. And we don't have those conversations about, um, you know, are we going to sell something so we can have some more money? We have lots of conversations with family members of, with opinions about what we should be doing on the ranch and what we should be fixing up and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think, you know, passed down from generation to generation has been this allowance of each the subsequent generation to be able to try different things you know the the older generation always goes i don't know and then you know you give it a shot you throw some things against the wall and some of them work and some of them don't but 
without that, I don't think that you can evolve into, into, you know, keeping up with the times and being able to keep things, keep things going. But, you know, and, and obviously the conservation easement was a huge piece of, of how we're trying to keep things going and, um, and passing it down from generation to generation and avoiding as much of the government taking, you know, their chunk of it, uh, that I think those, those are the two big keys that I've, I've come across for, from our family. And Daniel's touched on something that I harp on with the local state national cattlemen's association is the older generations got to let go. They can't, uh, not only the decision-making, but they've got to let go of the title here in California. Well, any place really, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a gifting program to your children, uh, the IRS is going to get 40% of whatever you've got. And, uh, yeah, we, there is a big statutory exemption right now, but I don't know that that's going to last. As a matter of fact, right now, I would say it's not going to last. So what are you waiting for? You, if you don't trust your kids, that's one thing. Maybe you put it in a trust or something, but you can't hang on to it and have the family ranch survive. Now, uh, Daniel, you mentioned uh, the the easement that one of the ranches has, and I, I know we probably have a, a split with our listeners. People support easements. Half half the audience probably is opposed to easements. What what was that education process like? Uh, who did you partner with on it, and, and uh, how 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 is that easement uh, helping create more opportunities for the family business and keeping it uh, uh, viable for the next generation? Well, I, I think it was it was easy stuff for us because my dad helped start the California Rangeland Trust, so I'd I'd grown up listening to the conversations and understanding it. And I think, and I've had conversations where I've said the word conservation easement and seen the faces of the terrified people on the other side of things. And through those conversations, I've learned it's mostly just that they misunderstand what what they are they they don't want somebody coming in and taking over what they're doing or telling them how to do it and they don't want an easement through their property is kind of what their thought process is and and so most of it is just education of people that these are not things that you should be terrified of these are actually a really helpful tool in surviving uh you know the the lifestyle of ranching you know being able to pass it down from generation to generation, but also, you know, being able to pull money out of the ranch that you that you would never do it unless you sold it, putting it into something that you can diversify yet again with that can feed money back into the ranch to help it sustain. I mean, it, there's really no better tool than that. And just the the mechanics of it uh, for some people who are who understand this stuff, you do a 1031 tax free exchange with the money you get from your easement. And you can put it into an apartment building or something that that generates cash. Some people put it back into ranching, which, you know, if, if that's what they want to do, it's fine. But if you want to have some income, particularly as your family gets bigger and bigger, there's a chance for some income for those who aren't going to be out on the ranch all the time. Yep. And it's in terms of it hasn't changed what we do whatsoever other than one day a year really half a day a year, I go out usually with the monitor and we take some pictures and chat and we're back at the gate by 1230 in the afternoon and they're gone and I get back to work. And actually in that point, I, I monitor some of the ranches around here for other rangeland trust uh, easements and 
it's some of my favorite days of the year. We get to go out on these amazing ranches that are going to be conserved forever. They're going to be ranching for the rest of our lifetimes. And we spend time with those ranchers and we learn new things. You know, I, I've picked up several things that have been really important to our operation just from those conversations. So, you know, I, I think that there's just a, a multitude of, of benefits that, that, uh, that those provide. California's population is so much bigger than, uh, say, the state of Montana, where I'm from. Well, we do have a lot of California and Washington state uh, folks moving to Montana. We just picked up a Congress seat, so I chose we are growing here. But my point is land is a commodity, and they don't make more of it. And uh, I guess, uh, uh, Steve, I was watching a, a land trust video, I think, yesterday, and, and you were discussing uh, about a wilderness area near your ranch. And uh, uh, most ranchers might say uh, wilderness areas, uh, wh wh why would any rancher be advocating for a wilderness area? C can you share about, uh, uh, about uh, th this wilderness area near, near one of your ranches and, and how that keeps uh, development from happening and how is that beneficial to, to uh, production agriculture? Well, it really was my dad's idea because we just had hideous impacts from trespass. People on all kinds of vehicles would drive out through this area that became a wilderness, you know, cutting their own roads. And then they dropped into us and then they cut our fences to get out. And, uh, you know, they spun their tires and created gullies and erosion and, and, and a nuisance and scared the cattle, all kinds of things that we hated. And it was a beautiful area. And uh, it's kind of a fun story because we went back to Washington and there was the head of Ways and Means, very powerful Congressman Bill Thomas, had a zero environmental rating. And we showed up on his doorstep and said, we really want this. We think it'll protect us and it's good for the environment. And when we were all done, he said, I guess I'm going to get my, my environmental rating above zero for the first time, which was very exciting for us because it meant he was going to support us. And uh, our senators were in favor, but the, the local congressman controls that. But we did it really to protect ourselves from outside people who were disruptive and destructive. And uh, when we look at that environmental stewardship and uh, taking care of your land, uh, what are some ways, obviously the direct-to-consumer model is a way to engage with consumers and share your story of raising cattle on the environment. Uh, what are some other ways that you have uh, uh, shared your story with uh, consumers in California and across the nation about just your role of a multi-generational ranch still continuing to raise cattle and take care of that land? Well, I think we every chance we get, we you know, if there's a group that wants to come out and see the ranch and understand it, you know, whether they're Audubon people or, or local ranchers themselves or, or outside of outside people, you know, we try to take that opportunity to, to have them out and show them around. But, and also, you know, uh, CBS evening news came out and did a piece, you know, early January out here. And we just tried to do as much outreach as possible to the, the general community, both far and wide. Yeah, and you mentioned the Rangeland Trust has done videos out here. That's on the web. We just, Daniel and I just took a group of um, people who came from California Oaks Symposium. We had a group out to the ranch. And you, know, you get people out on the land, it speaks for themselves. You know that from your experience. People love the open spaces. And they don't get 
really the opportunity to be by themselves with nature like they do on a ranch. So you give them a chance and they're going to love it. Now, could you expand more about that hunting club and, and how that how how hunting and conservation is also a way that you can share that message with uh, with folks in the countryside? Because I think a lot of the time, sometimes we get outdoors groups, uh, hunting groups, and um, maybe they don't understand the importance of private land. C- could you maybe talk about that? Well, our particular hunting group's been the same bunch for thirty five years. Needless to say, they're getting. A lot older and less hunt, less hunting and more hiking and sitting out in the wilderness. But um, yeah, they so they pay up each individual pays a fee to be a member, and um, they don't they don't share well with people who come in in their jeeps over the top of the hill and drop in unannounced. So they're very protective. They love the place. Um, they care about the cattle. They care about our operation. So that's a huge advantage to us. Um, I think I mentioned all of that before, but their connection to the ranch is much like ours. They they feel like they have roots there too, and now their children are becoming members. Rather, you know, as as they uh, retire or die off, their their children are showing up as members. So it's a it's it's almost another whole another family uh, with roots on the ranch. And we we have a tule elk on the on the ranch that were released in oh I don't remember eighties or nineties, and the and those elk are are providing income as well. So we're uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was one of the uh, conservation easement funders as well. So and and so that's a big piece of the hunting club's operation is doing several hunts every year that we get tags for. So um, yeah, yeah, just like my dad said, that they're they're an integral part in in who we are and and how we run the operation. So, Daniel, what are some technologies that uh, you utilize in ranch management and, and, and keeping keeping track of uh, pasture rotations and whatnot? Uh, do you have a, a, a technology that you use on your phone or, or, you, or you write it down? Uh, I, I'm curious to learn about that. Why do you suppose you ask the younger guy about the technology? <laughs> My dad's got a great piece of paper in his top left pocket. Yeah. No, we... Uh... We, we, we have just started kind of tinkering with, with that kind of stuff. It's hard because a lot of our pastures are, you know, 800 acres on average, and we're running a large calf calf operation. And so that it doesn't lend itself the same as, you know, other places to that kind of technology. But well, actually one of the more interesting ones we just ran across is um, it's called uh farm bot. And it's a, it's a, it's a water tank uh, monitoring system. So there, uh, that's been really helpful. You know, we have several tanks that are kind of canaries in the cold mine. If they're, if they're going, if they're going down, we, we, we know something's either broken or, you know, the spring isn't feeding the, into the water as quickly, that kind of thing. So th- that's been really nice. And then in the vineyard, we just put in a bunch of um, soil mo- moisture probes and, on my way down to this meeting, I was thinking about, gosh, we just need to stick one of those out in the field just to see what that, you know, how far that rain percolates down and, you know, how far away are we from the grass drying out, that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, technology is, is going to be really helpful, especially as we, as we move into an era where there are a lot fewer of us around to help manage the ranch, you know, having remote eyes on things is extremely important as everyone knows. And so, you know, 
for me to be able to pop on my phone and check to see if that water those water tanks are full uh, is is very helpful. Now, for uh, a person listening to this, that maybe maybe they're in college, maybe maybe they have a, t- a job in town and are still able to be involved in a family uh, business uh, in some sort on the ranching end of things. What what tip do you have for them in how they can try to open up, a, uh, start a conversation with their family members about diversifying? Because I think that's the hardest thing when you're trying to talk with your dad or your father-in-law or your uncle and it's almost you almost get butterflies and nervousness when trying to bring up the these topics it seems for for many of us what what are some tips that you have in in trying to open up that dialogue with someone that you're in business with or trying to expand into the family business just trying to make a business more profitable i i think numbers are key to everything you know if you're going to have a conversation about something you better know the numbers behind it whether it's trying something brand new or replacing a water line or or whatever it is you have to know what those things are currently costing you and what the opportunity cost is and not doing it but also the potential you know you have you have lots of different options and i think that numbers are the are really the key to to getting buying i also think that if you make an effort, I mean, typically like Daniel and I are, are just running the ranch and we're doing stuff. If you take the time to let everybody know what you're doing out there, it just makes them feel connected and they don't feel like you're, you're in charge and they're cut off. And, and, and it's, it's, it takes effort. And we have a scheduled phone call. It's not until February, but we're the whole family supposed to get on the phone I don't know what we're going to talk about, but just talk and let, and maybe more important, importantly is just listen and just let people say what's on their mind. And some of it, you're going to go, Oh my God, I, I hope nobody else likes that idea, but, but at least somebody's had their chance to say it. Well, maybe one of those family members is going to listen to this podcast and they're going to say, Hey, why aren't we raising beans <laughs> and potatoes <laughs> and potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the problem is who's going to do it because the two of us are so busy, we don't have time for anything else. It's already, you know, ranching is already a six and a half or seven day a week job. So when somebody has a good idea that involves time, we always encourage them to take it on. Now, now, Steve, you mentioned the, the family phone call. Uh, are, are, are you two comfortable talking about how the how the, the 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 family ag business is set up and how many partners or potential partners there is? Uh, I think that might paint a really good picture of of how uh, of how the business runs and and how other families and entities can can learn from that model. Well, we're we're a partnership. Um... And we've gifted the, the the bigger ranch has been gifted to Daniel's generation, um, and I have two sisters, so they're they're six in Jan- Daniel's and three in our generation. And for a long time, there were my parents who were also involved, and it all worked pretty well, just with the communication being uh, pretty open and taking in new ideas and being willing to go try something. Um, I don't know what you can add on that, Dan. But. Well, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think, you know, our our generation, there's six of us were tied in together on, you know, talking about management of the operation in the in the larger sense of, you know, directional. I'm 
I'm the person who's here on the ranch every day, uh, carrying out all the specific tasks and keeping things together. But once or twice a year, or hopefully more often than that, we're all getting together and discussing, you know, the plans that I have. I try to make a five-year plan every once in a while um, that we that we try to have some direction on. But but for the most part, it, it's fairly straightforward. It's a partnership. Um, like my dad said, they they've passed down their portion to us, and we're in the process of passing down our portion to the next generation. And while the those things are favorable, and why is it important to look at it this way? Obviously, if if a family member had that that mindset that this is my portion and I want to make money and I'm going to cash in or or uh, or I'm the guy on the ground, I'm doing all the work. I I I, I need to. It, it should just be all mine. How do you separate that that mindset from emotion and family legacy and, and looking at more as that business model of, of creating a revenue source where this can stay together, a family business, and continue to stay in production agriculture? Boy, I bet. I, I got a couple of answers. Yeah. One is you start when they're really young about this is something we all share. This isn't just yours, and this is this is our family legacy, and it's really important. You know, sort of building that connection that you maintained later on through reunions or whatever, and the and the emails about what's going on. Keep that connection, but you got to start telling the little kids. You know, this isn't an asset. This is your family. This these are your roots. This is like your hometown. If you if if you're urban, you maybe have your hometown that you love and you care about. And then the second piece is kind of the, the conservation easement, like here's a ranch, it will always be a ranch. You can't carve a little piece off of it. And uh, unless a majority of the, or whatever you set that up to be, unless a certain number of members say, uh, we can't do this anymore, I wanna sell it, then you have to sell the whole thing. And that's, there's, there's a mechanism that we've set up through a LLC to do that, but those are decisions that you make when you're all getting along, not not when you're at war with each other. It's got to be. It's you've got to anticipate that. Yep. But boy, isn't that the? I mean, isn't that the biggest issue? You know, you've got between people aging off and and those not wanting to come back or or not willing to take that sacrifice uh, financially to come back. You know, the other half of it is people wanting to get out. They they're not interested in it, and being able to tie people back to the land at an early age, I think has been our success. You know, our grandparents started that instilling that, you know, all of us at an early age, including my generation. And so um, I think we're blessed in, in the idea that that's, that's ingrained in all of us. But, yeah, it's not controversial in our family. No. Well, I really do appreciate you guys talking about that because for so many families, it is controversial, it's emotional. Um, uh, some people think there should be fairness when there sh and, and uh, others think that there should not be fairness for, for other family members. So I, I truly appreciate you sharing that aspect of your family business because uh, cause some, some operations aren't comfortable talking about, about uh, planning and, and, and whatnot on that front. And, and Steve, you know, looking back to, you know, you're talking about your family coming to California, first getting a start in agriculture, uh, where where do you hope to see this uh, in, in generations down the road? Uh, and Daniel, yourself, how do you hope 
that this open dialogue between family members, how do you hope this continues to, to foster that conversation where this land can still be a part of a family uh, operation generations from now? Well, you have to model the behavior. Uh, you have to do what you preach and, uh, you know, and, and go right back to the same thing. You know, if you have a family reunion, the kids all get instilled with this ethic. They, they, they see the ranch and they see how you feel about it and they, they're out on it and they're on a horse and, and they're enjoying it and it begins to have some meaning to them. Now you can always have somebody who's just not in that camp. And with the Rangeland Trust, I've had a lot of instances where the conservation easement was to buy, the money was to buy out the people who wanted to be bought out because the others were so wedded to keeping the ranch as a ranch. So it was, it worked for both sides. You know, the ones who wanted out got their money and the ones who wanted to stay in had it protected and they didn't, they didn't get the money, but they got, they got to have more of the ranch. That's a, a, a piece of it. But for our family, it's really just living, living the life and making sure that others are enjoying it and appreciating it. Well, and I, I, I think, you know, my kids are, we, my generation all has kids around the same age, which is really nice. And they, they're all in their, you know, nine, nine to 17 range or so. And th it's that, that's become one of the bigger pieces that I think we'll be talking about uh, as over the next couple of years. I mean, it's going to be more important to have that conversation to figure out and make sure that everyone is on that same page going forward. And, and that's, that's probably my biggest worry about the ranch in the next, in the next generation is making sure that they're tied, tied to the, to the land. So. Well, gentlemen, we've, we've covered a lot of different areas here today and, uh, and I, I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing uh, your family's story, your history, and and the details of your operation. Just are there, are there any last uh, thoughts you'd just like to share? Whether that's uh, uh, raising organic beef, uh, looking at family planning, or just diversifying anything that I skipped over that that you would just like to share here today. I don't think so. I, I uh, thanks for having us on, of, of course, and and hopefully our story helps somebody in some way. And if anybody wants to contact us, of course, we're, we're always available. Uh, our information's on avenalsranch.com. So. Yeah. And we've talked about easements, which is a big thing in California, but you know, Montana's had a, the land reliance for way longer than we've had our, our conservation program here in California, Colorado. There's a, there's a lot of ranching states with, with ranching based land trusts. And, and you can, if, if, if you think you might be interested it should be a non-pressure kind of conversation that you can explore and take or not take as you see fit. Well, again, thank you much to to Steve and Daniel for for joining us here today, and uh, check out their their website as well. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed our conversation today, and uh, this is the best part about the Cattleman's Call: just talking with those producers in the countryside and maybe creating a little bit of a different uh, mindset out in the countryside for our listeners. Uh, Steve and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Lane. Thanks. All right, friends, that'll do it for today. I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordlund. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.